residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights, just you, me, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited because our guest is from the amazing, award-winning Afford Anything podcast. She's really well-known for her real estate ventures and coaching in that space, but I love the other side that we don't get to see as often, and that's really her philosophies around why we do the things that we do. So I'm really excited to bring on Paula Pants. And we had this amazing discussion in this show around the processes around making good decisions. Whether they're financially related or not, it honestly doesn't matter. We make millions of decisions in our lifetime, some small and some large. And while we don't need a formal process to really weigh every decision, we need one for the big ones. Buying a home, paying off debt versus investing, whether you should go for fire or not to fire or even having a traditional career versus maybe a career in entrepreneurship. Those are the ones that we need to have some formal foundation and process behind evaluating and selecting the best outcome for our specific situation. Now make sure you guys stick around to the end because Paula is going to give us some amazing insights on what action steps you need to take to make the adjustments. All right, let's welcome on the show Paula Pant from the Afford Anything podcast. Paula, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm really excited to hang out with you today. Thank you so much for inviting me on the show. I'm glad to be here. Oh, it's going to be super cool. So I have kind of thought about this and I was like, what can we have Paula on to talk about that wasn't really real estate related? And mm-hmm. I want to talk a lot on making good decisions and like the process around making decisions. And research has showed that we make about 10,000 decisions every day. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, like your thought process on you know, how do you make good decisions? Wow. I, I, that's Start a, high a, level. Yeah, that's a very big question. So one thing that intrigued me as I started thinking more about finances and about how to manage my life. I mean, when you first encounter the world of trying to figure out how to manage your money, and I think probably a lot of people who are listening can relate to this, initially at the beginning level, it's very tactical. It's like, here's a pile of money. How do I allocate this? How do I budget it? How do I manage it? But when you go a few levels deeper, a lot of the strategic long-term choices that you make 
in, in order to give yourself improved odds, the you 20 years from now will be happy with the choice the you of today made. And given that we are humans are poor at predicting what will cause our future happiness, a lot of the decisions that we make around money and about career, in order to do that well, we need to think about how to think. And so that was where my interest in this topic originated. That meta thinking of thinking about how to think and deciding how to decide, it, it originated from that because that is the keystone foundation to being able to make good decisions in any arena of life, whether it's money or career or or family or relationships or location. And there are a number of exercises that a person can go through in order to make better decisions. So, for example, the standard pro-con list that many people are introduced to as children is actually a flawed model. Because if you assemble a list of pros and cons, one side of that list might be longer than the other, but that doesn't account for the weighting that each factor is going to have. And so one easy iteration of that is a weighted pro-con list in which you make that list of pros and cons, but you assign a numeric weight on a scale of 1 to 10 or 1 to 100 for the importance of each factor on that list. It's one improvement on it, but again, it's imperfect because what is important to us now may not be important to us in the future. And so that's where we get into some other more sophisticated decision-making models, such as decision trees, where you use a tree diagram to map out if this, and then the consequence was that, how do I predict that I would feel? And you can, that's an alternate decision-making model in which you can tree it out. And those are just two examples of many of like tactical decision-making models. Yeah. And it's interesting. So when you say like the pro-con model is flawed, mm -hmm. is it because of the framing around that? Oh, wow. There's 20 cons and there's three pros. Is it, is there bias based on size? Is that also kind of why you, you're, you're saying it's, it's flawed in that sense? Exactly. Exactly. So for exactly as you said, it's easy to look at the volume of entries on one side of the ledger versus the other and assume that communicates more information than it does. If you are assembling a list that does not weight the relative importance of each entry. And I'm thinking now like part of this you know, decision tree matrix or whatever is as a nerd, I use flowcharts a lot. Mm -hmm. And so one of the questions I get all the time is, should I pay off debt or invest? I've done mm. shows on it. I've written blogs on it. I've done all this stuff. And literally to me, it flows down to a flowchart. Everyone's personal finances are just that. They're personal. And so I give some guidelines or some bumpers in the way that I model it is through a flowchart. Is there other ways that people you know, can model these thought processes or these major decisions? Let's take finance, you know, decisions for the reference of this podcast. Is mm -hmm. there other ways that they could do that? Well, actually that, so I think the flowchart model, particularly for should I pay off debt versus invest is a, an excellent model to use because there are so many potential repercussions of each decision and, and the downstream effects of each decision. You'll want to look at what those downstream effects are and then kind of assign values to this is my deal breaker. This is intolerable. This is better. This is okay. So let's actually, let's go through this example because perhaps giving an example yeah, will, will make it a little bit more concrete. All right. So let's talk about, should I pay off debt versus invest? And in order to make this a little bit more concrete, let's just, we'll just assume a hypothetical scenario. So a person is, we'll say 35 years old, married, no children. They have $150,000 worth of student loan debt. Ooh, we're going low. Oh, give me a bigger number. 
Our average is 298. Two, okay, let's round it up to 300. 300 orcs. All right. $300,000 of student loan debt. Okay, should they be a homeowner or not? Sure. That 35, I could say that Okay. maybe a third of them would be homeowners, so let's use All it. right. Great. Okay, so $300,000 of student loan debt and let's say another $300,000 on remaining on the mortgage. Does that sound reasonable? Perfect. Yeah, that's okay. totally reasonable. I mean, especially Vegas numbers. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. Give me an annual income. 250000 Okay. $250,000 annual income. So after tax, that's going to be around 150000 we'll say. Take home. Yeah. Call it twelve k a month take home. Twelve k a month take home. Perfect. All right. So to walk through this decision, the factors that you would want to look at include the mathematical repercussions of paying off debt versus investing, the emotional ramifications of paying off debt versus investing, the psychological or spiritual ramifications of it. So let's kind of walk through each of those. In terms of pure mathematical ramifications, first, it's fairly easy to calculate the opportunity cost of each decision. So if you have 300000 in student loan debt, on average, we'll say a 7% interest rate, and then another $300,000 on a mortgage at, we'll say, a 4% interest rate. Even setting aside the invest, should I invest or not question, if we look at those two identical amounts of loans with disparate interest rates, then at a mathematical level, it makes sense to pay off the student loan debt first in this hypothetical scenario, because that one has an interest rate that's significantly higher than the other one, right? The student loan debt has an interest rate that's significantly higher than the mortgage. but then you kind of layer in the question of even setting aside the should I invest with that money example, we'll just set that aside for now for the sake of simplicity. But then you also want to factor in like the emotional and psychological impact of paying off either of those two debts. For some people, knowing that they live in a fully paid off home gives them a certain sense of relief that far exceeds the sense of relief that they would obtain from knowing that their student loans were paid off because that diploma can never be taken away from you. The student loan debt is unsecured, but your home is secured. And if you default on your mortgage, then your home could be lost. And so you were not just comparing interest rates, we're comparing an unsecured loan versus a secured loan. And so for some people, the emotional ramifications of paying off that secured home loan and knowing that their home can never be taken from them is worth the additional money that they would spend in interest over the life of the student loan if they were to prioritize paying off their mortgage first rather than that student loan. So that would be an example of a very reasonable scenario in which a person might choose to pay off the lower interest loan first, not because it mathematically makes sense, but because that's what's going to allow them to have better peace of mind. Yeah, the behavioral finance component of this is huge. And it was funny, you stop making the payments on your house, you're going to find out actually who owns that house pretty quickly, right? In 90 days, you're going to find out really easily who owns your house if you stop making payments. But emotionally, I see a lot of this where it's, should we go for public service loan forgiveness with our student debt or not? It's interesting to see kind of the behavioral finance side of mathematically, it might be better to do one thing but uh, sometimes people do the other. And you mentioned spiritual like ramifications. And I'm curious if you could go into that really quick, or is that the same thing kind of as the emotional side? Well, it's not exactly the same as the emotional side, but 
of course, like spiritual ramifications are going to be a little personal for everyone, but there are, I guess I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this in the most sort of general way possible. Each person has a different idea, for example, family planning and where they want to be financially before they began a family. Each person has a different idea about the morality or judgment or ethics around carrying different kinds of loans. And I think the example that you gave of having parents who had the loans in their name or parents who were co-signers on a student loan, that's another layer of it. So to the extent that various debts impact your personal ethics or your relationships with others or your family-related decisions, there's a big kind of relational and spiritual component there. Okay. I was wondering if that was the route you were going, because I took that when you said it as more of the core beliefs, absolute truths. Deep down, what do we actually believe in? How do we perceive or interpret the outside world around us? So I was curious if that was where you are, or if I was way off on that. I would say that's very close to what I was also alluding to, because there are people who believe neither a borrower nor a lender be. And if that is core to your set of beliefs, and yet you have these student loans, then that would be additional incentive to prioritize those, even if that comes at the cost of potentially making bigger gains if you were to invest that money in an index fund. Special thank you also to Comp Health. You can work flexible locum assignments on the side for extra income, or you can work locums full-time too. And on top of all of that, locums almost always pays more on average. So head to financialresidency.com slash comphealth and see what locums can do for you financially. Link is also in the description of the show you're listening to us in right now. I want to ask you a couple more example questions or like big decisions that people might have and just maybe your thought process around them or, or maybe the process of making a good decision for someone that they might be able to go through. And it would be silly of me not to ask whether someone should, you know, look at going for FIRE, the financial independence, retire early, or to not go for that. And that's obviously the FIRE movement's been growing. And I know you're very much a part of that. For physicians, I feel like it's really different for them. And so I'm curious if you could maybe give them some framework around making a good decision, if that should be something that they ultimately want to choose or not to. Sure. Well, first, so when we talk about FIRE, financial independence, retire early, first, I want to tease out and separate these two concepts, financial independence being a distinct concept from early retirement. So early retirement is without going too deep into the semantics hole of how do you define the word retirement, early retirement to most people has the connotation of leaving behind your primary place of occupation. For the segment of people who are highly motivated to do that, you know who you are and you're highly motivated to do that. So go for it because that's what gets you up in the morning. But distinct from that is the concept of financial independence. And financial independence I define as having enough potential passive income, typically through investments, that working becomes optional. What that means is that your investment income doesn't have to be investment income. Sometimes for some people, it could be royalty income. Your sources of passive income provide enough money that at a minimum, you could support a basic cost of living for yourself and your family. It may not necessarily be the lifestyle that you want, 
And if you think about spending in terms of the needs bucket and the want bucket, if your passive income can cover the needs bucket, then you can use some type of side income, side hustle. There are ways that you can generate additional income to get you that wants bucket and to get you the lifestyle that you want. But there is a certain freedom that comes from knowing that if there were a crisis and you had to take an unpaid leave of absence from your work, if you had a family member with some dire emergency, you had to take an unpaid leave of absence from work for two years, there's a certain sense of freedom that comes from knowing that at a minimum, you'd be okay. You may not enjoy your lifestyle, but you'd be able to keep up with your bills. And so that is how I define financial independence. When you ask about going for financial independence, I'd actually reframe it a little bit. I think financial independence is often the consequence or the side effect of managing your money well for a prolonged period of time and encourage people, especially for people who aren't highly motivated to leave their primary occupation, I would encourage people not to conceptualize themselves as shooting for financial independence, but rather to adopt a lifestyle of good financial practices. And when you do so, financial independence becomes the organic natural outcome of that over time. I love that so much. And I think I'm going to butcher this when I try to say this again. So maybe it's just better for people to like skip past 10 seconds <laughs> and go back and hear it again. But it was the side effect of managing your money for long periods of time yes. and a lifestyle of good financial practices. Yes. That's amazing. Exactly. I love reframing that. And I like the FI part. I really don't like the RE part mm -hmm. of FIRE. I always just found it silly. If you really don't like what you're doing, there's all sorts of different types of fire that's coming out. Lean fire, fat fire, whatever fire it is, the flavor of the day. If you really don't like what you're doing, do something different. Find a way out. Don't just hate Monday through Friday afternoon and then be excited for the weekend because that seems like a waste of life, honestly. So I always have that. But for physicians specifically, I've seen this side gig or entrepreneurship side of what they're trying to accomplish. A lot of them are going into this where they're thinking, well, should I do a traditional career or should I have some other source of income from medicine? And normal corporate people would be like, you're physicians, you make 250, 300, some of them make half a million dollars. Mm -hmm. Why would you need more income? Why would you do that? Why would you want to be escaping from that? And I'm curious, like if they were thinking this, have a traditional career versus entrepreneurship, what would be a good framework for them to think about making better decisions around that? Should they go for this or how should they maybe approach that? I would start by taking a deep look at your values and your motivations. Sometimes observing your own actions is a clue into how you're feeling. Like when it comes to self-monitoring or self-management, sometimes we don't know what we're feeling. And sometimes we think we feel something when we actually feel something else, but we haven't yet admitted that to ourselves. But I found that observing your own actions, observing what you gravitate towards is often a clue as to what you really feel and what you really want to do. So if you find yourself procrastinating on something or if you notice small, subtle acts of self-sabotage in some arena of your life, that's probably a clue that you know, are struggling with self-confidence, self-esteem issues in that arena, or that you don't actually want to do it. And likewise, if you find yourself gravitating towards something, reading about something in your spare time, excited to talk about something at a cocktail party, 
again, it provides some insight into the direction that you would want to go in. You have the highest likelihood of success at the thing that you are most interested in. And the cliche of follow your passion, I think, is a little overwrought. Passion is a loaded word, but follow your curiosity. And if you follow your curiosity over time, you have a higher likelihood of bigger and better things emerging. That's so well said. I love some of the stuff you're saying. Follow your curiosity. It's just a different frame of thought. Mm, thank you. And oh, no, I absolutely love yeah. some of the thought process uh, here. And so excited that we're sharing this with everyone. Thank you. To, to go back to what uh, we were chatting about earlier when it comes to that going for financial independence, the analogy that I sometimes like to use is oftentimes people get hyper-focused on outcome or hyper-focused on results rather than focusing on the process itself. And particularly, I would imagine for this audience, we have very intelligent, ambitious people who we are often goal-oriented or results-oriented. If you reframe that and recognize that specific results are a little outside of your circle of control, but the actions that you take, the process, that's directly within your control. So the analogy that I sometimes like to use is, let's say that I want to lose 10 pounds. Rather than getting hung up on the number on the scale, like rather than getting hung up on the result, what if I simply stopped drinking a liter of Coca-Cola a day and stopped eating chocolate cake every night and then just see what happens if I do that? In that way, I'm controlling my actions. And even if the result that ultimately unfolds isn't exactly what I want, even if I don't lose exactly 10 pounds, the very fact that I've taken those two actions, the, the fact that I stopped drinking that liter of Coca-Cola at night, that in and of itself is going to have a lot of positive downstream effects. I wish I could just say it was 10 pounds, Paula. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could. And so is my wife over here. Be like, yeah, as the doctor, I agree. So you kind of knew where I was going and without knowing it, but I was thinking if people are sitting here thinking, like, okay, I know where I want to focus. I know what I need to pay attention to, but in those areas that I might need to focus on, what are some of these action steps that I could do, should do to make adjustments? And is there a framework around that? Mm. Okay. My slogan is that you can afford anything, but not everything. And that is essentially a slogan that illustrates the concept of opportunity cost, that every yes to something is an implicit no to something else. The problem is we are never taught to frame our decisions around money management or spending in such a way. Oftentimes when we make a decision, we make that decision in isolation. Yes, I want to go to a restaurant tonight. Yes, I want to buy this particular car or lease this particular car. We make each decision in isolation without thinking about how it's going to impact the bigger picture. But instead of isolating the variable of, do I want to lease a Audi or do I want to buy a used Honda Civic? Everyone I mean, should know the answer to that question. Exactly. But if we just look at that in isolation without thinking about how that affects everything else, then we're not making a good decision because we're not looking at, at the consequences of that decision. But if that decision is framed with regard to what is the cost difference between these two options? What is the highest and best alternate use of that money? So let's say that the cost difference between decision A and decision B amounts to $10,000 a year, right? If you had another $10,000 a year, what is the highest and best use of that based on your personal value system? Would you put that 10,000 towards 
more aggressively paying off your student loans? Would you put it towards opening a 529 college savings plan for your newborn child? Would you put it towards a big night on the town with champagne and caviar? If that is the conscious decision that you make, then that's the conscious decision that you make. But that decision comes after sitting down and really noting what your values are and organizing those values based on priority. Again, I guess it goes back to waiting, right? Not everything can be in the number one spot. So make a list of all possible things that you value and what reaches the top of that list. If you say that you want to travel, but you're spending money on lots of other things, cars and clothes, and you're not putting any money aside for travel, then is it really the case that you want to travel? Or is it that mm, you think you do, but it's actually not a priority? I love it. It's a, you can afford anything, but not everything. And I typically say well, you can assign a dollar one job. And are you spending it in a way and assigning it in a way that makes you happiest? So it's amazing to have you here. And for the five people on the planet that don't follow you and know what's going on in the Afford Anything community, can you tell them what's going on and give us a little behind the scenes of how you guys are operating, what you're up to and where they can hear more about you? Yeah, absolutely. So I am the host of the Afford Anything podcast. And since everyone who's listening here is a fan of listening to podcasts, I would encourage you to just pull up on whatever app you're listening to this podcast, pull up the words Afford Anything and then hit follow or subscribe. And that way you can start tuning into the Afford Anything podcast. I teach a course on real estate investing. Specifically, I teach a course on beginner buy and hold residential rental property investing in the United States. So if you live in the U.S. and you're a beginner and you're interested in buy and hold residential rental properties, you can go to affordanything.com slash enroll, learn more about Afford Anything and become part of the community. I also have a free ebook that you can download at affordanything.com slash escape. So that's affordanything.com slash escape. It's a fairly high level. It, it doesn't go too deep into the specifics or tactics. The ebook called Escape is more of an introduction to the concept of financial independence and intentionally designing your life. So for people who are listening to this, I'm sure you're already well acquainted with those concepts. But if you know somebody, you're trying to introduce a friend or a family member to that, then send them over to affordanything.com slash escape. Well, as a big fan of the podcast, I only have five podcasts that I now listen to because my commute is literally 20 feet because I work from home and mm -hmm. I don't have my hour long commute anymore. Like you were one of the five and it is a pleasure to have you on and to hang out with you. It could go on for hours, but I know that is not going to happen. So thank mm -hmm. you so much for being on and really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Well, that was such an amazing time with Paula. She has such a wonderful outlook on life, and it's always a pleasure to talk with her. All right, before we end, it's time, though, for our important disclaimer. This is for entertainment purposes only. Do not take this as investment advice. My dad is only a fiduciary for his clients. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.